0: as we continue and complete our study of the life of David i have nothing but so much excitement and joy as a church we have gone through the life of David and it's taken some time first and second samuel are not uh, the fastest and shortest books to go through in the bible And I love how God has been using it so mightily in our life and how it relates so much to what we're going through in our life, day after day. The title of my study tonight is David's Last Words. And we look now at the life of David being concluded. We remember as we've been studying since April that before David was ever a king, before Israel even had a king. Remember, they were a theocracy. They were ruled by God. Until one day Israel finally demanded that they had a human king. They wanted a man to rule them like the other nations that they saw. Turning their hope away from God, they began to put their hope in man which we should never do. So God said, fine, you want to have a king? I will let you have a king. And thus Saul entered the account. Saul was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over Israel. Going against what Samuel told the people to stay away from, He obeyed the Lord because the Lord was going to use Saul to chasten the nation of Israel. But Saul, loving the affirmation of man rather than being obedient to God, he began to sin. He began to turn away from the Lord when God would command him to wipe out the wicked nation of the Amalekites. He kept the best of the Amalekites. He kept all their livestock. He kept the king. And he said that he did it because the people were begging him to do so. And then in response, Saul said, okay, well, we're going to sacrifice the animals to appease the true living God. And then when the prophet Samuel came to him and heard the bleeding of the sheep, he said, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Weren't you ordered to wipe out all of the Amalekites? And he told Saul, King Saul, that God, because of his disobedience, was going to rip the kingdom of Israel away from Saul and give it to a man after God's own heart. This man being David. And now in this account enters the young shepherd boy, David. David just tending his father's sheep, Jesse. And as David was there tending the sheep, a bear would come to attack the sheep. And David was put in the situation where he had to fight this bear. And he realized that God gave him strength and gave him victory over the bear. And then a lion would come to attack the sheep. And then again, David, trusting in the Lord, fought the lion and was victorious. Seeing how God was giving him victory. And then Samuel, the prophet, is told by God to go to Jesse. That Jesse had a son who was going to be the next king over Israel. And as Samuel is there looking at all the big, strong men that Jesse had, he's like, surely this guy right here, the biggest guy, is going to be the king. And God spoke to Samuel and told him, Samuel, no, you're wrong. You see, man looks on the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart, he told Samuel. And Samuel said, okay, do you have any more sons? And then they said, oh, we have David, he's the litter of the runt. He's the small guy outside taking care of the sheep. Let's bring him in. And God said, This is the man who's going to be the king and rule over Israel. So Samuel anoints the shepherd boy David to be the next king over Israel. And then David, still loyal to his dad, taking care of the sheep and then taking care of his family, his brothers would go to bring food to his brothers as they were men in the army of Israel. And the Philistines had come against the nation of Israel. And Goliath, the giant of the Philistines, came and said, bring out your best man and fight him. We'll do this one-on-one and we'll end this war. And he began to defy Israel's God. He began to curse the God of Israel And David, as he's bringing food to his brother, hears this giant speaking blasphemies against the one true living God. And David said, enough. How are we going to let this Philistine say these things about our God? And David, knowing that God had always given him the victory over the lion, over the bear, said, I will fight this Philistine. And as in times past, God is going to give me the victory full of faith, full of courage. He went and slew Goliath, the giant, with a stone in a slingshot. And then he cut off his head and took it to King Saul. And suddenly people began to cheer and David became well-known in Israel and they sang songs of him. And perhaps David at this point in his life was beginning to think that, wow, maybe this is how I'm going to become king of Israel. And just when perhaps David found a way to success, it was then that Saul, King Saul, began to attack David mightily because he was jealous that people loved David. And so he began to attack him so much to the point of attempting to kill him, attempting to send men after him to kill him. And David, at a certain point, had to leave the kingdom of Israel to go live amongst the Philistines because his life was at stake. And there, David, I'm sure at this time, was met with some of the greatest disappointments in his life. And he was there in the wilderness. But I believe it was here in the wilderness where he began to be completely broken as a young man, completely learning how to depend upon the Lord God alone and learning how to trust in the Lord for provision, for protection, and not to look to man. Even to the point, where when David, he's out there in the wilderness, he begins to learn that there is even success in the wilderness, that there's opportunities for leadership. That As David had his 300 mighty men gathered to himself, and they were a motley crew. They, these were not your college-educated and trained men. These men were men who were in debt, men who were uh, anxious, men who were distraught. And God brought these men to David and David led them and used them mightily. And there David was learning leadership and even learning how to be gracious. There were times when these men would surround Saul and they would come to David and said, David, look, the Lord has given you victory. You have the opportunity now to strike Saul dead. We found him. And David would say, far be it from me to go against the Lord's anointed. How dare I? It happened twice. And every time he would go to Saul and said, Saul, look, I had the opportunity to take your life, but I won't go against the Lord's anointed. And Saul, there's nothing that I have against you. We see Saul was a man who was weak in the faith. He was a man who was emotional and living uh, off of his needs that his wants rather than what God wanted to give him. And so at the end of his life, he sought a witch, someone to perform a seance, a medium, someone to tell him what his future held because he was so uncertain of his future. And out of this seance the prophet appears, Samuel, and tells him, King Saul, tomorrow you're going to be killed in battle, you and your sons. And the very next day, as Samuel said it, so it was done. King Saul and his sons went out to battle and were killed. So now, with the king out of the way, David was ushered back into the kingdom of Israel and anointed to be king over all Israel. And God blessed him mightily as he was king. David was being successful and he desired even to build a temple for the Lord. He said, uh, we went to the prophet Nathan and said, Nathan, I want to build this temple for God. And the prophet told him, "Go, go ahead, do it. Do all that's in your heart. And then God had to stop Nathan and say, hey, go back and tell David he can't. His hands are too bloody. But tell David that I'm going to build him a house. And this house is gonna be one that is eternal. It's gonna be everlasting. And from your seed, there's gonna be one to bring justice. Referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And David understanding this promise that was given to him, that it was through his children that the Messiah was going to come. He was comforted. But David, even then in this time, at the peak of his success, you see, he began to multiply wives to himself. And his lust began to grow. And it was then when he was so successful, kicking back and not taking on the responsibilities as a king should, that he went out of his palace one day and looked down the hill there and he saw a woman bathing on top of a roof. This woman being Bathsheba. And he began to lust after her and the lust overtook him. It started in his mind and then went to his heart and then it went to his actions. So he summoned the woman to him, Bathsheba. Her married, him also married. And there he he committed adultery. He thought nobody knew, nobody would find out. And then she got pregnant. And then in order to cover his tracks, he created this big plot and scheme, which failed miserably to the point that he then had her husband Killed, murdered, in battle. And he thought, "Oh my hand, it's all taken care of now. Nobody's ever going to find out I'm just going to marry Bathsheba and everything's going to be normal." But the prophet Nathan came to David and rebuked him. In this parable that he gave to David at the end of it, he ends up telling David, "You're guilty, David. You're so guilty." And David, once he realized that nothing was hidden from the Lord, he broke down and repented. But it was because of this sin, this great fall, that God chastened David. He punishes David for adultery and murder. God told David in his house, there was gonna be violence in his home that his wives would be publicly taken away from him and that one of his own family members would rise up in rebellion against him. And the worst of it all was that the child that he had with Bathsheba God allowed that child to die as he was just a little kid. And David was met with some of the worst chastening I think ever, anyone's ever experienced, some of the greatest chastening. And God was just in everything. So David repented and God was still merciful to David. And we see that David was a man with so much mistakes in his life. But still known as a man after God's own heart, It gives me comfort to know that God used David so greatly despite his mistakes. It reminds me that it's not about me. It's about God. And David still had to pay the consequences within his family as he was having many children. One of his daughters, Amnon, would be raped by her half-brother, I'm sorry, his daughter Tamar would be raped by her half-brother Amnon. And then out of vengeance for this rape, Absalom, another brother, would have Amnon assassinated, killed, murdered. And so violence and rape and murder already is taking place now in David's children's lives. And David is seeing these consequences take place. And then Absalom would rise up in rebellion towards his father, draw people towards himself to the point where he got enough people to have this great rebellion where David and those who were loyal to him had to flee into the wilderness again. And I'm sure it was there again where David's in this wilderness season, realizing that he needs to completely submit to the Lord. Then he needs to toss up the white flag and say, I surrender God. And God still, throughout all of the entirety of David's life, we see this common theme that God was with him. And there he still protected David. When Absalom would gather his troops together to go fight against David, God would give David victory out there in the wilderness. And Absalom was killed. His hair caught in a terebinth tree and the men killing Absalom. So David returned to Israel. He returned to Jerusalem. And though as the, it couldn't get any worse, right? Well, we already read in 2 Samuel chapter 24 how David, inspired by Satan, again disobeys the command of god and he numbered the people and the plague comes upon the nation of israel because of this killing 70,000 and then david realizing his grave mistake repents and o- goes and repents and then offers sacrifice he gives it to the lord and prays and asks god to stop the plague And God does, he relents. You see, David was a man with some of the most monumental failures. But still, again, we know that God loved him. God loved him so much. And he's learned so many lessons in his life. And he knew God would be with him. When I look at the entirety of David's life, sure, we see all the mistakes he made. But it may not be forgotten that he was forgiven. That he was loved of God. That God still used him mightily. You see, most of the times when we think of David, we think of David fighting Goliath, right? God's chosen man against this great giant. And now David, in the presence of the Almighty, he's sinless. He's been forgiven. And that forgiveness is offered to all of us. And as he learned all these lessons in his life, before his last breath, David would go on to write these words. This man who had gained so much wisdom now at his very end, writes these last words. Let's begin our study in chapter 22 tonight. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, we read here a song that David wrote. It's actually the same psalm as Psalm 18. And perhaps this is the first time David wrote it here. And then once he kind of got everything exactly the way he wanted it again, he wrote Psalm 18 with a few minor details uh, different than this second Samuel chapter 22. Now let's look at verse one. It says, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised so shall I be saved from my enemies. As David is beginning this song, he's writing this speaking of God's salvation and his preservation. Now, when David wrote this psalm, when he wrote this song, it's actually debated. Some people believe that he wrote this early on in his life when he was young before his great fall with Bathsheba. And others believe that he wrote this later on in his life afterwards. When did he write it? I don't know. But there are some interesting truths that he says in relating to when this might have taken place. Now in verse 5, it says, When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. So now here are the trials that would come upon David's life. And this is very poetic. The waves of death, floods of ungodliness, sorrows of Sheol. Now Sheol is the common Hebrew word for hell. Uh, there's actually, in the Bible, there's different places referred to as hell. See, Sheol is just common hell. There's also the Abuso, which would be the pit, which is going to open up and lead to hell. That's how We read about that in Revelation. There is Tartarus. Now, this is the bottom of that pit. Where right now God has these demons that are locked up, reserved for the time of judgment. Now these demons, they were those demons we read about in Genesis. That they went and began to have relations with the women on the earth. So God locked them up in hell. They're locked in Tartarus. And then there is what is known as the outer darkness. And there's these four places that the Bible mentions of, of being in hell. That outer darkness, the word, Hebrew word for it, is Gehenna. Referring to the lake of fire. This, it's eternal. You see, death and hell, it's a real place. And when David was met with these fears... This great darkness. Let's see what he does. In verse 7 In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. You see, when death and hell were surrounding David, what is his response? He responds with, Prayer. May that always be our response. How much toil and endless suffering we endure when we first simply don't go to God in prayer. In verse 8, then the earth shook and trembled, the foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. Wow, such great illustration here, David is, on how he envisions the Lord rescuing him from these trials. How mighty God is seen. And then in verse 14, The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered, at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils." How do you envision God? You know, sometimes I think we think way, well, we always do, but we think way too small of our God. We think of God as this force, like maybe from Star Wars, that might intervene in a situation that might be with us. But no, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is mighty, strong, able to have the whole environment, of uh, the storms, the fires, the volcanoes, the earth shake, all under his power. That's our God who designed the stars in the sky, created the giant sea fish to swim about in the ocean, created the ocean so we could surf. That's the God we pray to, able to do all things. Now in verse 17, he sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. See, our God is a personal God. Our God is not impersonal. Our God cares about us. He wants to have a personal relationship with us. He's not off far distance in the clouds somewhere that we cannot Be close to him. But he is near to us. And this is how God rescued David in these verses. How he delivered him. And the enemy was stronger than David. And sometimes the reality is, what is up against us is way stronger than us. But with God, when we're with God, if God is for us, Who can be against us? And in verse 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the way of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Now, in these last verses, I do see verses 21 through 25, seeming to be as a time before David's great fall with Bathsheba, possibly. Or if he wrote that afterwards, then we see that David was a man who truly knew the forgiveness of God so much. But perhaps he wrote this before his great fall. Now in verse 26, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. One thing to note about God's mercy here, as David knew much of it, David was learning and realizing that his relationship with the Lord was not a works-based relationship. His relationship with the Lord was based on that genuine relationship, that genuine love that he had with God, that God loved him, that he loved God. That was the basis of the relationship. It was by faith. We are saved by grace Through faith. Now, grace is something that we do not deserve. So we cannot work for it. And in order to receive this gift of grace, something that we do not deserve, we have to take that step of faith and believe that it's for us, that God is giving it to us. Despite our sin, despite our good and bad works, when the nation of Israel would go to God and say, look at our our great works. He would send the prophet Jeremiah to tell them, your works to me are as filthy rags. And filthy rags in the Bible were actually, it was another euphemism, another word for saying a, a woman's cloth from her menstrual cycle. That's how God viewed the works-based relationship as something that was so far from him. But God still was so merciful. We see in verses 26 through 28, the attributes of God, that he's all merciful, that he's pure, that he's perfect, that he's all wise, all knowing. But he's omnibenevolent, meaning he's all love. You see, whatever God is, any of his attributes, he's all of it. If he's powerful, he's all powerful. If he's knowing, he's all knowing. If he's good, he's all good. There's no evil in him. Now in verse 29 For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Do you feel sometimes that you're in darkness? Do you feel sometimes that you don't understand what's happening in your life? That if you could only just see the way to go, well, God is your lamp and God will enlighten that darkness. But we have to ask God to do it. Cannot be our own light. And I love how David writes about running against a troop and being able to leap over walls. Throughout so many times in Jewish Jewish history, we do read about how God was always, well, many times, giving his people that supernatural Ability to maneuver against enemies. Miracles that would take place when Israel would be attacked. Even to this day, we we read about that. I remember a a few studies back talking about the Israeli tanker who was able to defend against so many different tanks that were coming upon him. And he was just one tanker, but the enemy thought that he was many because God gave him that victory. Now in verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? See, God is perfect. And one of the titles that God has given throughout the Bible is he is the rock. You see, this great rock, it's something secure. Jesus told his disciples, look, a foolish man builds on sand. And then when the storms and the waves come, that house is knocked down. But a wise man, someone who hears my words and obeys them, I liken him to that man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the waves came, that house remained standing. In verse 33, God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. He has also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me, so my feet did not slip. Notice where all this goodness of our life is coming from. Not from ourselves, but from God. God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. I think so many times in this life, in this world, we've become to believe that our success needs to be driven by us. Biblically, that's not accurate. Biblically, our strength and our power comes from God himself. Verse 35 again, I'll read that verse again. He teaches my hands to make war. David was a fierce man. Who knew there was a time to submit, a time to retreat, but there was also a time to make war. And in verse 38, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth, and I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. Man, David was a fierce dude, huh? As I'm going through this, though, what I recognize is that we are in a spiritual battle. There are battles in this life. We are experiencing spiritual warfare on a daily basis. And when we forget that, we become so disturbed by our life. When trials come our way, we're greatly disturbed. When we expect to be disturbed, we're less likely disturbed. When we expect trials and surprises from the enemy, we could just say, oh, well, God, you're with me. And realize this, that as a believer, when you sign up to be on God's team, the enemy hates you. He hates everyone regardless, but he wants to bring you down even more so. He wants you to to bring you down to hell. And so when we sign up to be in God's army, to be one of God's children, we do sign up for battle. And we need to be prepared for battle. The armor of God, Ephesians, right? From head to toe, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, and the shield of faith. And we pray these items on us. God, thank you for salvation. Help me to walk in truth. Remove from me sin and let your righteousness be what guides me in my life. May I carry this gospel of peace to other people. May I use your word in my life increase my faith and protect me from the attacks of the enemy. When we pray this on, we're gearing up so that we're prepared for the battles that are ahead. And if you're not being spiritually attacked, I sometimes question, well, are you are you even in this battle? Maybe you're not a threat to the enemy. And there's seasons, you know, we go in and out of battles and praise the Lord when you're not in it and you're in walking and abiding in Christ. I'm not saying you have to be in a battle or else you're in sin. But if you are in a battle, praise the Lord. It reminds me and shows me that you're doing things for the Lord. That the enemy wants to attack you because he wants to bring you down. But know that your reward in heaven It's growing, and God is with you. He's for you, and he's going to fight your battles for you. In verse 44, You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened into their hideouts. Now these foreigners he's referring to, we're this Philistine nation. This nation that was pagan, that was killing their children and sacrificing them to the gods of Moloch and Baal. And I realize in these verses that God is concerned about the nations of the world and God is sovereign over all of them. And we have to remember that God is in control, not man. God is in control. He places men where they need to be so that ultimately God will fulfill his purposes in this life. In verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. Notice the personal praise here. He says, blessed be my rock. That's that personal relationship that he has with God. And in verse 48, it is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. This is David's response. He praises God. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be worshiping the Lord in every season. Perhaps you heard me a a few Sundays ago. I was strongly against Newsom's orders to stop singing in church. I rebuke that. I think we need to be praising God. We need to be worshiping. We need to be praying for one another. Now in chapter 23, David's last words. We're only going to go from verses one to seven right here. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So David here in his last words on his deathbed is writing this introduction of who he is, son of Jesse, a man raised on high, anointed meaning selected chosen to be used by God and the psalmist of Israel. And the psalmist, that's just someone, a, a songwriter. He's a, someone who loved to worship God in song. In verse two, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God himself speaking by him. You see, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Men wrote the Bible, but the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Now, when I used to hear this word inspired, I used to believe that, well, okay, that means they were emotionally moved or motivated like an artist would be, that they were inspired by God to write the scripture. But that's not what the word in the Hebrew, the word of inspiration means. What inspiration in the original Hebrew means is it means God breathed. Meaning that God literally breathed these words onto the text. And God, being perfect, is breathing truth. God cannot breathe lies. So men were used as the instrument to write the Bible, but God breathed the words onto the text. The Bible, the original text is without error. It's infallible. It's something that's trustworthy, something that we can live based off of. God gives us the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. verse 2, again, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds. Like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. I love how David is so artistic with his words and how he's teaching through the Spirit that leaders must be just in the Lord. They must have justice. If a leader is not led by the Spirit, if a leader is not led by the justice of the Lord, then he's going to lead wickedly. He's going to lead selfishly and corruptly. And it is a beautiful thing when leaders lead righteously. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray that righteousness would, that the Holy Spirit would break through their hearts, would impact And then in the opposite, we read in verse five, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made me with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? See what David experienced in his household was great grief over violence, murder, adultery, leaders who were not leading righteously, people who were not just. But God was still faithful. Faithful so much so that despite David's great and terrible mistakes, that he had an eternal covenant with David, that from his household, the Messiah would come. And then in verse six, a warning to what happens when men are not leading according to God's word. It says, but the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Now, there are some great symbolisms here about these types of leaders that are wicked. It says they're like thorns, that you can't just place your hands upon them because you're going to get hurt, but you actually need to be armed with iron and the shafts of the spear so that we can be in this army of the Lord fighting against evil. When I see as these leaders are going to be utterly burned with fire in their place, I'm reminded of Jesus's words. I'm reminded of how Jesus told us, told his disciples, look, abide in me and I will abide in you. For without me, you can do nothing. But with me, nothing will be impossible. And he says, he who does not abide in me will be cast out into eternal punishment, into fire and be burned. Now, one thing I love about the abiding in Christ is that when we abide in Christ, we can have peace about our purpose. When we abide in Christ, we can have peace about our purpose. You see, when God has a plan for our life, he designed us special. We're different than every other person in the universe. No one's got your thumbprint. No one has the same eyes as you, the same soul. You're different. And God made you for a specific task, a specific purpose that nobody else can fulfill except you. And when you abide in Christ, he allows you to walk into that purpose-filled life so that you have contentment, so that you have peace. You see, when we try to then go outside of God's perfect will for us, when we try to do our own will, we become frustrated. We fall into sin. We become upset unfulfilled, without purpose. But all that simply needs to happen to correct that is we just need to abide in Christ. And just as the plants on a vine, the grapes that are produced from this vine, the grapes don't struggle in turmoil to become one. They simply are connected to the vine and it's just the consequence, a good consequence of that branch being connected to the vine, it just simply produces fruit. It's not striving. Because when we are linked in, when we're connected to God, when we're connected to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit simply come. We don't have to strive for it. We can rest We could be at peace. Remember, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we love Jesus for this. Thus, we conclude the life of David, a man who learned so much of the wisdom of the Lord. May we be men and women after God's own heart. And be ready. I do want to go back to Genesis now. Right before we were hit with this great pandemic, we were studying the book of Genesis and we had to stop right in the middle of it. But now being that we have concluded the life of David, we are going to next week be continuing in the book of Genesis. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Father, continue to go before us. Continue, Lord, to give us wisdom and discernment. I pray, Father, for those who are struggling in trials or God's seasons of of loneliness, seasons of anxiety, who are surrounded by hell, surrounded by the enemy. I pray for, Lord God, your Holy Spirit to give them that supernatural victory, Lord God, to give them, Father, that comfort, that peace. Go before them. We love you, Father. Free us from the trials. Free us from our sin. Free us, Lord God, from evil. Renew a a spirit of peace, of love in us. We love you, Father. We want to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's finish with this is the air I breathe. Is my daily bread your very word spoken to me? And I, I'm a desperate for you. Desperate for you, and I, I'm lost without you. Amen. Be blessed this week. Use the name of Jesus in conversation. to watch the Life of David movie in my backyard, not this Friday, but two Fridays from now. So I hope you guys can make it for that. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, we praise him. Amen.